Okay, Ecclesiastes. Uh, we returned to this uh, study. We took a few weeks uh, off. We did something, sort of a, a one, one-time uh, thing last week, and then before that, Mike Payne had filled in uh, for me with our counseling conference. But we come back to Ecclesiastes, a, a wisdom book primarily designed to bring its readers to grips with the reality of the fall, uh, with the reality of, of the curse, um, and to teach them how to live uh, wisely, how, how wise, godly people can reduce uh, the frustration of living in a sin-cursed world. Uh, Martin Luther summed it up this way. He said that Solomon, Solomon wants to put us at, at peace and to give us a quiet mind in the everyday affairs and business of this life so that we may live contentedly in the present without care and yearning about the future. So the goal of Ecclesiastes is, is to teach you to live skillfully, to teach you to live calmly and, and in a stable way in a world full of frustration, uh, and to teach you how to handle life, not, not when things go wrong, but in a world that is wrong, that's, that's, that's upside down and, and, and confused, uh, and again, under the curse of sin. Uh, so it's about true wisdom. And the last time we looked at uh, Ecclesiastes, we pointed out the fact that true wisdom submits to God-given authority. True wisdom submits to God-given authority. That is to say that if you are wise, then you will understand submission to authority and you'll live in light of that. Chapter 8, verse 1. Uh, and We looked at these verses together. He says, Solomon writes, who is, who is like the wise man and who knows the interpretation of a matter a man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. I say, keep the command of the king because of the oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave him. Do not join in an evil matter, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since the word of the king is authoritative, who will say to him, what are you doing? This is true wisdom. It's not getting out from under authority. Uh, it's, not, it's not resisting authority or, or trying to change the authority that God has placed over us, which are all attempts uh, to somehow guarantee that we experience a pain-free, uh, trial-free life, uh, raging against human authority and thinking that if we can just fix this issue of human authority or government or whatever authority it is in our lives, then we will find prosperity and satisfaction and will protect ourselves against adversity. And Solomon says that's just not going to work. It's not going to work. Rather, he says, what is good for a man is for him to submit to the human authorities in, in his life. That is the path of peaceful, godly wisdom. So he continues in verse 5. He says, he who keeps a royal command... Experiences no trouble, for a wise heart knows the proper time and procedure, for there is a proper time and procedure for every delight, or it could be translated for every matter, though a man's trouble is heavy upon him. If no one knows what will happen, who can tell him when it will happen? So true wisdom submits to authority, and, and the person who keeps the command of the king we might say, avoids unnecessary trouble. That is to say that no Christian will needlessly get himself into trouble if he follows the Scriptures in every situation. 
However, the, the authorities' purposes in our lives may not be the same as God's purposes, and that may disappoint or cause us to trouble uh, that it is not of that that it is not of your own doing. And and this is this is heavily, this weighs heavily, he says, upon us. But that is what life is like. That is what life is like under God's providential working in this world of sin. No one can ever read the future to know how to prepare for all is changeable and uncertain and and that's really the point that Solomon is trying to make. That that is why, if you will, we submit to authorities. That is why we submit to the human authorities that God has placed over us because we don't know how things will turn out in the end. So we know this. The, re- the result of our, ob- our obedience in life as believers is uncertain. We don't always know what God intends to work out through our submission to authority or uh, our obedience to the commands of God. The truth is, is that Helm says, God moves in a mysterious way. Uh, that Helm says, Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. So we, we often don't understand the working of God. Of course, we like it, right? We like it when God manifests His sovereignty in the sunshine. We like the predictability of God's blessings. Uh, we like that sort of steady advance in the Christian life. We, we want that clear path. We like being able to see what lies ahead, but we cringe when God manifests His sovereignty in the storm clouds. We prefer God to work in predictable ways, especially uh, when it's steady, consistent blessing. We want to see the path rather than trust the hand that leads us in the dark, but God brings both sunshine and storm clouds, right? We've talked about this in previous verses where Solomon makes the point that God is the one that brings both the day of happiness and both the day of adversity. And back in chapter 7, he said this uh, in in verse 14, In the day of prosperity, be happy, but in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man will not discover that will be after him. So God brings both. He brings the storms. He brings the sunshine, sunshine. And the question is, why does he do that? And we've considered that question when we went through chapter 7, but we, he does that so that we will not imagine control the future. So in Scripture, we have examples of God's unexpected working. Uh, many examples of the Lord, uh, if you will, turning a thunderstorm into sunshine. Think about Abraham and Sarah, right? Abraham and Sarah were kept child so that God could bring a miracle child. Joseph Joseph was sold into slavery and thrown into prison so that he could be exalted to leadership in Egypt. Judah was threatened by an Assyrian army of 185,000 soldiers so that God could destroy the army in one night. The The disciples were caught in the storm. Jesus could calm the sea. Lazarus was allowed to die so that Jesus could raise him from the dead. Paul was imprisoned 
so that he could preach the gospel in Rome with round-the-clock protection from Caesar's own Praetorian guard. Judas, Judas betraying the Lord Jesus so that Christ could die for our sins. So God often works in impenetrable ways, in, in mysterious ways. But honestly, I think most of us would prefer that he didn't, <laughs> right? Uh, we're thankful when the clouds break up and the sun shines through, but we probably would just like for the sun to shine through all the time, right? We would prefer that God not alternate, if you will, between prosperity and calamity because we are much more comfortable like we know the future and have some control over the future than trusting God with an uncertain future. We would prefer to have perpetual blessing, but that would only lead us to to treat God like cough syrup or some medication, something that, that we don't need unless things are going bad. So, to protect us from that, God keeps us guessing for the purpose of keeping us trusting. So that you, you and I will stop trying to control God, so that you'll stop turning his, his proverbial principles in Scripture about blessing the righteous and troubling the wicked uh, to protect us from, from, from changing that proverbial or thinking about that proverbial principle as an absolute principle in an effort to somehow dictate or control our future and to determine that so that God will, uh, so that we won't think that God is someone who is obligated to do what we want Him to do. So God alternates these things. He keeps us, he keeps us guessing because He will not be boxed in by our super-righteous living or our even magical faith formulas. He, for, for our good and for His glory, will bring unexpected trials to our lives, and He does that so that our trust in Him will be active and strong. So God wants you to, if you think about it this way, God wants you to believe in Him, not a formula. Uh, he wants you to know that, that while you should be wise and, and while you should definitely be taking those proverbial principles into consideration and being prudent, you have to trust God with your future. That is true wisdom. True wisdom acknowledges that God can be trusted with the future even when he seems to be breaking the rules or breaking his own pattern of blessing, uh, blessing the righteous and cursing the wicked. But the idea that you can know and control your future, Solomon says that is false wisdom. It's false wisdom. To think that you can know what's coming and to think that you can somehow uh, manipulate God to give you perpetual blessing, somehow control uh, the outcome. That's, Solomon says, outright, that is, that is false wisdom. And, and that super righteous, or if you will, super faith formula living, that is false wisdom. Why? Well, for several, for several reasons. First of all, it just doesn't hold up. Uh, it fails uh, in regard to life. For, for controlling God in the future are false because they fail to stand up to the realities of daily life. The test of life really is. You think about it. You begin your day with a plan, right? Most of you, when you get up during the week, uh, it's not too long after your eyes open that you're already thinking about what's ahead of you. 
I mean, right? You, you're thinking about what you, you know, do you go, are you, in a, are you late? Are you, do you wake up and you already realize you're behind? Are you on schedule? What, what kind of clothes should you wear that are appropriate for whatever activities you've got planned that day? All these things begin to go through your mind, and yet by mid-morning, God often changes your plan, right? I mean, you, you start out your day with this expectation. Uh, you start out this day with, with, with your plans and the way you think, think things will go, but before sometimes even you get to the breakfast table, God has altered those plans. So I just ask you a simple question, and that is, did, did anything happen to you this past week that you were not expecting? <laughs> probably more than one thing, right? More than one thing in our lives probably happened this week that we were, that we were not or, or expecting. you think you can control your future, uh, you, you, go to, you go to Job and ask him. Job, can you control your future? And Job would, Job would tell you, he, Job would look up from the ash heap and say, that's foolishness. It's foolishness to think that you can somehow know those things or control those things. So Job was a righteous man, but he woke up one morning and discovered that God broke the pattern. Right? God broke the pattern. Because Job had a clear conscience before God and those proverbial principles would say that if you're righteous and you live that way, God will bless you. <laughs> and that when wicked, evil men do wicked and evil things, God curses them. But on that morning, Job realized that God sometimes breaks that pattern, right? So, so the, the wise men of Solomon's day or the sages of Solomon's day could say what they wanted and the smooth-talking salesmen of the word-faith movement, we see this even, right? I mean, we have this, this kind of formula living even in our, our day. But those slick-talking salesmen of the word-faith movement can deceive their audience with all kinds of alluring models and stories. Biblical ideas, and it's supported by just plain old life experience that you don't know what will happen tomorrow, and you cannot control it. You plan and you may predict, but you cannot determine. God will not allow you to bump him off of the throne. So there is an unpredictable reality to daily life. Things happened last week that that were not on your calendar. So that's just that, and just in regard to life, just in regard to our own experience in the last seven days, we know that we cannot control the future. And know those things with absolute certainty. So it fails in regard to just everything. But that sort of formula living also fails in light of or in regard to... Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, isn't it true that the final nail in the coffin of the word faith movement is the reality of death? Right? I mean, if we can speak reality into existence right, as those teachers say that we can, if we can by some kind of faith formula dictate perfect health, if we can write our own ticket with God, then why are all the men and women who started the word faith movement dead, right? (laughs) I mean, death sort of kind of uh, dismantles that idea that we are in control and can know these things. And even the ones that are living, right? Those teachers that are promoting that message today, they're going to get sick. They're going to get sick and they're going to die. 
right? Now, he says this in verse 8, No man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind or authority over the day of death, and there is no discharge in the time of war, and evil will not deliver those who practice it. If you think about all these examples, all these, all these are examples or illustrations of your powerlessness, <laughs> of your inability. Solomon says that through all of your righteous living, through all of your, your efforts to try to control things and manipulate things in your life so that you can get the comfort that you want, you can have the outcome that you want, you can avoid the adversity, you can guarantee yourself a, 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 a peaceful life that's, that's free from all of those troubles. He said it's interesting that through all of that righteous living and all of that faith, you can't even control the wind. Or you can't trump death. Or if you'd say this way, you can't even control the day of your death. So this week I was just thinking, you got, these, you got this, most of you may have heard about the accident that happened so the University of Georgia Students, it was five, one vehicle, but a, a vehicle carrying five uh, UGA students, uh, young ladies, hit another car head on. Last I heard, four of them, I think, died on the scene or, or, or immediately, but the driver survived. I think she's still living. But the question is, why her? Why did she survive <laughs> and not the other four? And I would just say, because it's God's plan. But, but who knew? I mean, who, who would have thought? You think they were planning for that? <laughs> and even now, the outcome of that, it's, it's, just, it's just another reminder that these things are in God's hands and that we are, we are for the most part, part, powerless when it comes to many things. So he says you can't, you can't control the wind. You can't trump death. You, can't, you cannot control the day of your death. Uh, you can't get permission to leave the battlefield in time of war. You can't do that. I mean, you can't just be in the, in the trenches there uh, with your fellow soldiers and then go to your commander and say, hey, I got a, I got a request. Can, can I go home? <laughs> you, can't, you can't do that. I mean, everybody understands that. You don't even have the power to do that, to get yourself out of that situation. And he says, if you think that pursuing evil will get you what you want, you're, you're wrong there as well. Because that's never going to keep it. So it's this idea that, again, it goes back to this passage where Solomon was saying that you can be exceedingly righteous, but being exceedingly righteous doesn't keep you from these troubles. In fact, but then be careful about the opposite. I mean, I'm not saying go pursue excessive evil either, because there's trouble with that as well. That's not going to prevent from this. That's, like, that's, that's worse. So formula living... Solomon says, fails in regard to life, and it fails in regard to death, and it fails in regard to injustice. Verse 9, all this I have seen and applied my mind to every deed that has been done under the sun, wherein a man has exercised authority over another man to his hurt. So Solomon's saying, listen, you're not going to stop the injustice. You're not going to stop all of the corruption. Uh, John uh, Galbraith made this comment. He said, quote, Under capitalism, <laughs> man exploits man. And under communism, it is exactly the reverse. <laughs> right? I mean, right? It's, it doesn't matter. I mean, and again, this isn't when Solomon's talking about the king and obeying the king here in, in the first part of chapter 8. This isn't this. The purpose of this passage isn't to say this is the best form of government. Although I, I would, 
I would say biblically speaking, probably a, a, a kingship is the best idea. It's just we don't have a perfect king yet, right? But we will, right? But the reason why we have the kind of government we have is because we recognize the sinfulness of man and are trying to somehow, we're trying to curb that a little bit. What are we really finding out right now? What we're really finding out is that we can set that system up with its safeguards, but it still ultimately begins to go downhill. All governments do evil. All governments do evil. But where does it come from? That's the question. And, and the question is, evil, the, the answer is evil in government arises from the evil heart of fallen man living in a fallen world. That's where it comes from. It's going to be unfair. There's going to be injustice in a fallen world. And it's false to think that you are going to completely right the wrong or that you can establish justice. But true wisdom... True wisdom recognizes the inequity of sinful authority, but believes God is in control. It believes that, that, that God does work in certain patterns, but when it appears that God is suspending his normal pattern and evil seems to be winning, the truly wise person doesn't panic. Right? We don't panic. We still trust God. True wisdom doesn't panic. True, true wisdom doesn't stumble like Asaph did in Psalm 73, right? When, so, when Asaph began to look around at all of the, the wicked and how they were getting fat and how prosperous they were, and, and, and it got to the point where Asaph said, he, I mean, he was beginning to slip, I mean, in his faith in God because he was focused on all of that. In, he was focused on the injustice and the inequity of all that. But true wisdom, Solomon says, trusts that God will judge the wicked at the right time and that he will reward the righteous at the right time and in the right way. And no matter what the circumstances seem to indicate, we can trust God. Verse 10, So then, I have seen the wicked buried, those who used to go in and out from the holy place, and they are soon forgotten in the city where they did this, this Two is futility. Now there's a there's a discrepancy here in in the in the in the text. Some manuscripts have uh, the word forgotten, which is what I just quoted. The new, if you have the New American Standard, you'll see that 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 word forgotten is used. Um, and and if that's the case, then it would be speaking about those who are who are buried and just forgotten, which would line up with chapter two, where it says that death is that great neutralizer. Right, So uh, it says there, in fact, in verse 16 of chapter 2, For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as fool, such as, as in the coming days all will be forgotten, and how the wise man and the fool alike die. Older uses the word praised. How many of you have an ESV? Okay, so it reads a little bit, it reads a little bit differently. It's got the word praised instead of forgotten, and, and, I'll, and the ESV says it this way, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. So the idea here is that the wicked go in and out of the temple. They offer their sacrifice. They go through the motions. They, they go back to live their same wicked lives. Okay? And then they die 
and at their funeral, someone preaches them into heaven, <laughs> right? So they do their religious stuff. They go back. Everybody in the city knows their wickedness. But at their funeral, someone preaches them into heaven. They say, you know, oh, this person was so good. They were so passionate. They, were so, they gave so generously. They were so committed to doing for others. But everybody at the funeral knows it's not true. And they are praised. They lived out their wickedness. So I'm saying that's frustrating. It's frustrating when the wicked guys pretend to be religious and they get all the esteem and the praise for being such wonderful people when they're actually total crooks. But how does that happen? How does it happen? And why does it happen? God broke the pattern. God broke the, pra- the pattern. God decided to give this guy a long life and an enduring reputation that he didn't deserve. Because what we would expect to happen to a person like this, based upon God's proverbial principles, is that this guy's life would have been cut short and he would have been plucked from the garden of the world like an annoying weed. Now, in light of what someone said in verse 10, he makes a general observation in the next verse about what happens when there are no swift and immediate consequences for sin, as in the case of the guy in verse 10. So what he's saying is that there's this guy in this city, and he, he, he does his religious duties, but he's wicked. And, and, and because he doesn't see the immediate effects of God's judgment, because God does break the pattern sometimes, right? And, and, and in, from our standpoint, blesses the wicked, so because, this, because judgment was restrained and held back by God for a season, this guy that lived in this town just continued to sin, right? And so he, he makes this general observation and, and basically said what happens in that kind of situation. Well, he says sinners get an even greater appetite for evil, verse 11, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, Therefore, the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. So just some, just some comments here regarding the general principle of that, of that particular verse. Think about government, okay? Regarding the role of civil government in our lives, we know Romans 13.4 says for, that government, these, uh, these uh, governing authorities are, are uh, for it, speaking of those authorities, is for it is a minister of God... Paul says, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. That is one of the most foundational things that a government is supposed to do, right? A government is there, has that place, so that those who practice evil will be judged, right? Those, they'll, they'll suffer consequences for their evil deeds. But when criminals have no fear of quick, decisive, and certain punishment, what happens? It says right here, men run swiftly to evil. That's what happens. Think about on the job. When workers know that the boss has gone home for the afternoon and that no one is around to call them into account, what do they do? You, you a boss? <laughs> you're a boss. <laughs> Hopefully none of your employees are in here. <laughs> but here's a, here's a guy who owns his own business, right? What What happens? Well, the the employees goof off a little bit more. Yeah, revenue drops. (laughs) Employees goof off a little bit more. They take longer breaks, right? 
What happens in the church? Think about this principle of the church. What happens in the, in the church when the church gives up on church discipline as outlined in Matthew 18? What does Paul say will happen? Sin will spread like leaven, right? People, people who fear no consequences will do just about anything. Think about our children. Those of you who have, have children, what will happen when a child discovers that there are no painful consequences for him or her when they choose to disobey one of their parents? They'll just keep taking their chances, <laughs> right? I mean, if, it's, if, it's, if, it's, if, if there's no sure, I mean, if there's this, enough inconsistency in the discipline in their lives that, that uh, they're not confident they held to account for the things they do, then they'll just be a little bit more, more lax, They'll, they'll, they'll run the risk. So Solomon is lamenting the fact that the guy of verse 10 did not get what he deserved. But, but it's not just in the city, right? It's in the church. This, this thing plays out in the church. You see it in the church. You see it in the workplace. You see it in your own family sometimes. God suspending his normal pattern. So, yes. Um, could the blessing of the wicked actually be part of God's judgment? Basically, themselves up. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, I mean, it's like that's why I said it a minute ago. I kind of throw in there from our perspective, because really, I mean, what kind of blessing is that? I mean, the thing is, even if they were the wicked, were blessed in ways that you know, through say, we, we tend to think of material things. They're given these things, whether it's relationships or people or houses or money or whatever. The interesting thing is that Solomon says those things are not the only gift. There's also a gift that God gives, and that is the ability to enjoy the gifts. So they can have all of the gifts, but be denied by God the ability to enjoy the very things that they have. And like I said, in the end, it just raises the stakes. It raises the accountability. Now they have more to give an account for, right? They have had instead not little things, but now much. To whom much is given, much will be required. So, yeah, in a sense, it's, it's not, but it's, I think Solomon's addressing sort of that horizontal, our perspective of things. That's the thing that we really, we really struggle with. So how do you handle that? How do you handle, how do you handle a situation where God is not doing what you, not only what you, what, he, what you expect him to do, but what in some cases you actually look at Scripture and you see these principles and you say, why isn't God doing what he said he would do? Right? That's the issue. And you begin to twist those principles and, again, turn those into to ways of controlling God and sort of backing God into a corner. How do, you, how do you handle that? Well, you handle it, Solomon says, with true wisdom. Well, what is that? Well, verse 12, he says, Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear Him openly. Again, this is the, the central pillar of all the wisdom literature, right? The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. Solomon has already pointed this out. We've talked about it in detail. He just brings us back once again to this key point that we're to fear God. We're to fear God, right? What is the fear? What, is it, what does it mean to fear God? Very simply, it's to, it's, it's to be concerned about what offends God. And to flee that, and to be concerned about what pleases God, and to pursue that, (laughs) 
right? It's to live in light of the greatness of God and the nearness of God, that everything that we do in life we do in the presence of God. And so it's not a slavish fear, not if we're in Christ, right? But it's a concern. and Maybe the best question to ask sometimes in a situation, if you're talking about the fear of the Lord, is as a believer, in any given situation, you ask the question, would my father approve? Would he approve? If, 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 you, if, if, if he does, if he would approve of that and you do it, that's fearing God. And if your answer to that is no, he wouldn't approve of that, then, then you run from it, <laughs> right? Because to do that very thing that God would not approve of would be to dismiss the fear of God. So Solomon says, not, and notice there's so many times in the book where Solomon has made the statement, I saw, I observed, where it seems like he's out sort of, and we've, he's actually painted scenes for us where he's gone to the temple and he's gone out into the city and he's seen these things. But notice here, he doesn't say that he saw this and observed this. He says, I know this. <laughs> I am confident of this. I know that it will be well for those who fear God and who fear him openly. Verse 13, but it will not be well for the evil man and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. See, God will revert back to his normal patterns eventually. <laughs> True wisdom is prepared for temporary suspensions of God's pattern of dealing with, e- with evil and God's delays in his justice. And true wisdom is okay with that. So true wisdom just says that when I see all the injustices and I see a guy that is, is like this guy in verse 10 that's doing this and, and everybody's praising this guy and then when the guy dies, it's, but yet they're, they're not saying what's true and they're not dealing with the sin and they're delaying judgment. And even as we think about God, we're saying, well, doesn't God hate sin? Isn't he going to judge this guy? True wisdom just says, settle down. Don't panic. Don't panic. Fear the Lord. Verse 14. There's futility which is done on the earth. That is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say this too is futility. So there are times when God in his sovereignty will carry out his purposes in a different way, unexpected way. In Psalm 73, where Asaph was struggling to sort of deal with his own adversity, and, and then, but yet his observation of, the, of, of how the, the wicked were prospering, uh, he goes on and basically testifies to the fact that he got his head together when he turned his gaze off of the wicked and turned his gaze back on God. So, in other words, he got his, he got his attention off of what God's doing out there with all those wicked people and just turned to God and was more concerned about what God thinks. And that's exactly what fearing God is, right? And the opposite of that would be to fear men, right? Would to be more concerned about what, what please, what, what's going to please man? What offends man? What's going to make man happy? You know, it's, it's what, what's, what, what is the fear of God? It's being concerned <clears throat> about what pleases him and what offends him. And Asaph in that, in that psalm basically tells us this that when he got his attention off of the wicked and, and stopped comparing his situation to the, to the wicked around him and got his attention back on God, that's when things turned around. He even says this in Psalm 73, verse 16, when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome. 
in my sight. All this stuff I was looking out here and seeing, and I was comparing my circumstances to other people's circumstances, and it was troublesome. 17, until I came into the sanctuary of God, and then I perceived their end. So it was that ability to look beyond the fact that God may be blessing them from our perspective, but in a very temporal way, but in the end, judgment's coming, right? So he turned his attention to God, and that's when he perceived their end. And he says in verse 18, Surely you set them in slippery places, you cast them down to destruction. So it's almost like what you're saying. It's as if these things that God is giving to them that we perceive as blessings, in the end, he says here, that they're actually on slippery places. (laughs) So they're getting these blessings from God, but the problem is they're looking for satisfaction in those blessings. For them, that's the end, right? I mean, the end of the game is that they get all of these things in their life and they sink all of their hope and all their confidence in those things rather than trusting in God. And it's a vain hope. And so the very things that they're given, because they put their confidence in them, those very things become slippery places in their life. And ultimately, they are cast down. So trust God... And in his time, he will give those people, those guys, those people that Asaph was looking at, the guy in verse 10 in in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, God will give them their due. But Solomon goes a step further. True wisdom just trusts God with some kind of grinding of the teeth, uh, resentful, jealous attitude. He's not just saying, okay, all right. I'll just trust God. (laughs) It's not that. Notice what he says in verse 15. So I commended pleasure. Whoa, wait a minute. This is unexpected. For I commended pleasure, for there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry, and this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life which God has given him under the sun. Solomon has just talked about the fear of the Lord. But here he gives us one of the ways that the fear of God is lived out in the life of a believer. Rather than stress out about what God is doing or not doing with the wicked, as you look around our world and as you look around your life, rather than stress out about those things, he says, focus on living out your faith in God in a very specific way. Stop worrying about what is going on over there Don't worry about how green or or not their grass is and enjoy what God has blessed you with. So he's just saying, forsake the envy of the wicked and enjoy the gifts of God in your life. So this isn't that sort of a hedonistic statement here in verse 15. It's not this just party, party it up, live it up, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we may die. It's not that sort of throw your hands up and just live like you want to. It doesn't matter. He's actually saying, if you go back and look at some, uh, a couple of statements back earlier in this book, this same terminology has come up, and, and, and in every case, it's not Solomon saying, because of the futility of life, just do what you want to do. He's actually saying, no, recognize that those things that are in your life, those gifts they're not meant to ultimately satisfy you. Nevertheless, they are gifts from God. <laughs> they're from Him. And so thank God for them, 
recognize that they're gifts, and enjoy those things. Because what happens when we begin to see the injustices and all the inequity is we get focused on how God is treating other people, and we get all ruffled about that, all disturbed about that. And and what that leads us to do is those things that God has given to us in our life as precious gifts, we we don't enjoy them. We don't enjoy him. So Solomon says, show that you trust God in this unexpected but very simple and wise way. In the calmness of faith, enjoy the good gifts that God has given to you. Don't live out your life in panic because of the crime or because of the injustice in the world. I mean, we should be concerned about those things. Right? I mean, it's not as if we're not concerned about injustice or we're not concerned about abuse of power. So we're concerned about those things at one level. We should certainly be praying. The scriptures command us to do that for even governing authorities, right? We're to do those things. We pray that Christ would set those things right. And at our level where we can, we should deal with injustice and promote equity. But when it comes to enforcing and bringing about justice, in many cases, our arms are very short, right? It's like that Geico commercial, right? The alligator, y'all seen this commercial? The Geico car insurance commercial says, if you have alligator arms, you avoid picking up the check. It's just what you do. How many of y'all seen this commercial? Okay. Where the guys, they're at the table, the, like, like a, people from the company are out to lunch, and there's an alligator in there, and he offers to pay the bill, but he can't reach the bill. It's on the table, and he's like going, wait, give me just a minute. I'll, 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 I'll get it. And finally, another guy just reaches over and takes the bill and says, that's okay. I'll take care of it. And then the, the narrator says, if you have alligator arms, you avoid picking up the check. It's just what you do. Well, you know what? When it comes to setting every wrong right... We have alligator arms. So Solomon says, do what you can, but then sit back and say, I will trust God to sort that out and to deal with that, but I will trust God by enjoying the good gifts of life. So you're trusting the Lord to deal with those situations, but you're also trusting God in that you're not letting those things slip by, those opportunities slip by. You're, you're, you're enjoying those good gifts of life. So your good gift may be a clunker car, not a, not a new sports car. It may be a, a life of infirmity and not a life of stellar health, or it might be singleness and not a marriage partner, or it might be an average paying job. But Solomon says, this is what you need to do. You say, Lord, I will show my fear of you and my trust in you by enjoying your gifts for your glory. Instead of complaining, instead of complaining about what I don't have, I will give thanks to God for what I do have and enjoy it. Now to this, Solomon adds a couple more thoughts regarding true wisdom. Uh, a truly wise person understands that God has, has predictable patterns of working, right? So God does work in certain ways. The principles of Proverbs are true and they do represent God's normal way of of working, but a wise person realizes that those are not absolute, and a truly wise person also realizes that God's plan for the world and for you is so incredibly large, grand, and intricate, so complex that you're not going to understand it. You're not going to understand it all. 
There are 7.4 billion people on this planet. And God keeps track of every one of them. Can you do that? <laughs> I mean, I'm just having a hard time keeping up with my, you know, my, my, my schedule, right? I mean, just what, who, where am I supposed to be? Who am I, right? Keeps track of all these things. And he knows how, how something in your life is going to affect somebody that's halfway around the world. God keeps up with all that. And so he gives us these final, this, these final two verses. He says in verse 16, When I give wisdom, and to see the task which has been done on the earth, even though one sleep day or night, and I saw God, I concluded, and the notice the cannots and the will nots, I cannot work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek it laboriously, he will not discover. And though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover. Some things are obvious to us. Some things we do understand, but most things we don't. But God sees and God knows. So Solomon says, listen, understand his normal pattern. Understand God's normal pattern of, of working life out. Understand those principles, but know that sometimes God breaks the pattern. Sarah and Abraham didn't get pregnant for 24 years, and they didn't understand why. Joseph was, was, would be sold as a slave and thrown into prison for a crime he didn't commit, and he didn't understand why. Israel was enslaved for 400 years in Egypt and did not understand why. The disciples were nearly drowning while Jesus was asleep in the bottom of the boat, and they did not understand why. Jesus delayed his coming and allowed Lazarus to die, and Mary and Martha did not understand why. Paul went to Rome in chains and didn't understand why. But God understood. God understood, and today God still understands. He has a perfect plan. So rather than trying to dictate your future to God by some ancient or even by some modern formula, embrace true wisdom. Rather than demanding to understand, which by the way, if he ever did explain all the intricacies of what he is doing, your mind would, your head would just pop off your body, right? Your mind would explode to have that kind of understanding. But rather than demanding to understand, rather than doing that, Put your hand over your mouth, trust God, fear God, thank God, and worship God. You say it this way, fear God openly, enjoy God's gifts, and embrace your ignorance. Right? That's the summary. The summary here is fear God openly, enjoy God's gifts, and embrace your ignorance. Ignorance concerning what Deuteronomy says are the secret things, right? Embrace your ignorance concerning the secret things that belong to the Lord, while at the same time searching out the things that God has revealed and that He expects us to know and obey and be faithful in those areas. Okay? All right. Well, we'll stop there for the day, and uh, we'll, next Sunday we'll pick up and sort of we'll come back and kind of catch the very tail end of, of chapter 8 because really beginning in verse 16, 
of chapter 8, that's this actually, this verses 16 and 17 really become the groundwork for what he's going to say, really, not only through chapter 9, but through the rest, the rest of the book. Okay? All right, folks, thank you for your time.